It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello there, David. Hello, Steve. Time to get angry. Yeah, yeah. And we got the, we got the man to do it with, the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hi, everybody. We've got a great show for you today. And I want to start by pointing out something that I think we all should know, that the Earth is round. But there are still some people in the world who claim it is flat. It's the same with the climate crisis. We all know it's happening. We all know it's driven by human industrial activity, yet there are still deniers out there. So how does one sift through this misinformation and deconstruct it in order to respond effectively to it? How do we tell a story to counter the story told by the deniers? Professors James D'Amico and Mark Bailden have written a book to help students, teachers, and anyone else who is the proverbial Thanksgiving uncle get that message across. It's entitled, How to Confront Denial, Literacy, Social Studies, and Climate Change. After that, we'll get Ralph's response to a few important current events. But first, despite the overwhelming scientific consensus, there's still a lot of denial out there about the climate crisis. Our next two guests are going to tell us how to cut through all the BS. David. James D'Amico is a professor of literacy, culture, and language education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Indiana University Bloomington. His work centers on teaching how to read, understand, and respond critically to all the information out there about complex topics, especially climate change. Professor Mark Bailden is Associate Professor in Foundations of Education at United Arab Emirates University, where he's talking to us today from. He has taught social studies in the United States, Israel, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, and Taiwan. Along with Professor D'Amico, he has written How to Confront Denial, Literacy, Social Studies, and Climate Change. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Professors James D'Amico and Mark Bailden. Thank, Thank you, you so much, David. Thanks for having Welcome us Welcome indeed. The title of your new book is How to Confront Climate Denial, Literacy, Social Studies, and Climate Change. And I want to start with a section in your book that is headlined, A Note About Terms. You don't really like the term climate change, and you want to use the term climate crisis. You also don't like people saying human-caused climate change because you assert quite empirically and accurately it's industry-caused and industry-induced climate crisis. So can you talk a little bit about why the people who are sending out scientific and normative warnings about the fate of the world in terms of climate crisis still use words like climate change and human-sourced climate change? Why do they use these soft words, inaccurate words, and you make a big point of that at the beginning of your book. James? Yes. Well, we wanted to start with clarifying the source of climate change. And that term human-caused or anthropogenic climate change seemed inadequate to the task. So that's why we have opted to use the term industry-led or industry-caused climate change. I think that's a really key starting point. It doesn't absolve individuals from our responsibilities, but it does provide the foundation from which we can build in terms of curriculum and classrooms. Um, there tends to be a lot of emphasis on personal responsibility to climate change. And I think we need a lot more nuance about how we talk about personal responsibility, but we want to start with an industry lens because that's the kinds of inquiries we think would be most productive 
in social studies and literacy classrooms. In terms of climate change, I mean, that is a scientific term that is used. And it is a term that we use in part through the book because that is how it is being discussed in, in education. You know, as more states moved toward climate change standards, they're using the term climate change and thinking about curriculum and standards for a statewide. But we think it's more accurate to talk about it in terms of a, a climate crisis. So in terms of the inquiries we want to promote in classrooms, that term is, is again, more apt to understand where we are at this point. And when you talk about climate denial, you're not just talking about the polls that show 20, 25, 30% of the people don't believe that what goes on in the realm of industry is creating all these super hurricanes, floods, wildfires, droughts, sea level increase. You mean something deeper than that, which is corporations, for example, who might mumble about climate crisis but they don't do anything about it. They obstruct Congress and state legislatures and others from converting to renewable energy and conservation of energy and displacing fossil fuels. And what's interesting about this book, listeners, is that there's hardly an area that's left untouched. Every time you read a page, you say, well, they didn't cover this. Well, in the next page, they cover it. So you cover the polls. Let's start with the polls, which is public opinion, how it shifted to recognizing the horrific consequences of climate disruption or climate violence. And then we'll go to the climate deniers in practice, even though their rhetoric may not be so oppositional. Let's start with the polls. It is shifting, isn't it? It is shifting. Yeah. So we rely on the Yale program climate change communication, their surveys they've been doing now for 15 to close to 20 years now, I think, as a way to understand the response to climate. And they have a continuum of beliefs that people might hold when it comes to climate change and grappling with the climate crisis more generally. And so when we think about that continuum, it's not just yes, yes or no. There's six different categories of people's beliefs from alarmed about the state of our environmental world at this point to the other end of the continuum being dismissives. On page 18 of your book, you have this. 31% register alarmed, 26% registered concerned, 16% register cautious in this poll, 7% disengaged, 10% are doubtful about climate crisis, and 10% are utterly dismissive. Now, the people who are dismissive, some of them describe themselves as scientists. And on page 15, you discuss the six stages of climate science denial. Can you give it to us? Yeah. So one level or one stage of denial is that CO2 is not actually increasing. So there's no increase in CO2. Then the second stage is even if it is, the increase has no impact on the climate since there is no convincing evidence of warming. A third stage is even if there is warming, it is due to natural causes. So trying to pin it on uh, natural phenomena. The fourth is even if the warming cannot be explained by natural causes, the human impact is small and the impact of continued greenhouse gas emissions will be minor. Five, even if the current and future projected human effects on Earth's climate are not negligible, the changes are generally going to be good for us. 
And then six, whether or not the changes are going to be good for us humans are very adept at adapting to changes besides it's too late to do anything about it. And a technological fix is bound to come along when we really need it. And so kind of kicking the can down the road a bit, thinking that there's going to be some sort of technological fix and, and enable us to uh, use clean coal or clean oil uh, of some sort. This is the kinds of denial that we're seeing among the dismissives. Well, it is fed directly and indirectly by the big oil, gas, coal companies, certainly nuclear industries trying to take advantage of it with all its higher costs and renewable all over the world. So the latest news is that ExxonMobil yeah. has announced a $50 billion stock buyback. That's with a V, which means that they don't think they should use these surplus profits after minimal taxation to lay the groundwork for the inevitable conversion to renewables and conservation. That's uh, wind power, solar energy, geothermal, energy efficiency among the major transitions. What's your view of the oil industry? Or, you know, over 10 years ago, BP, the big British oil company, wanted to call BP beyond petroleum. I mean, they admitted in ads that it's a declining industry because of all the issues we've just discussed and what you discuss in your book. So what's your read now is it a monolithic position by the oil, gas, coal, and nuclear, or are there variations around the world or in our country? Well, I think we've, we've seen a transition, and others have noted this, from moving from outright denial of the science of climate change to denial of the solutions necessary for addressing climate change. In our book, we make a distinction between climate science denial, which is, again, the rejection of the scientific evidence, and climate action denial, which is the refusal, the unwillingness to take the necessary actions to address the crisis. I mean, others, John Cook, the researcher, climate researcher, has done a lot of work in this area, talks about the shift from science denial to solutions denial. And that also aligns with you know, climate misinformation and solutions misinformation. So we're seeing the attempts primarily at this point from the major oil companies as these attempts to delay the necessary action. Sometimes it's called discourses of delay. So it's the related kind of greenwashing techniques, pushing non-transformative solutions. They might emphasize the downsides, the difficulty of transitioning to renewables. Technological optimism. Again, that there's going to be sort of technological solutions that will clean things up, although those aren't necessarily you know, ready yet. But yeah, these are some of the discourses that are delaying any kind of action and really you know, creating doubt around particular kinds of solutions. Yeah, they talk about carbon recapture. They talk about a number of things reducing methane. But a lot of our listeners know that the oil companies, especially Exxon, and a couple others years ago did internal research with their own scientists, and they predicted what was coming. They knew, but they kept quiet. There have been some lawsuits trying to go after them on that basis. They haven't yet succeeded, but it's quite clear that their scientists were right on back 30 or more years ago about what was occurring in terms of planetary climate disruption. So in recent months, I see the oil and gas industry stiffening their opposition because of the demand for oil arising out of restrictions from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
Do you find that? you find they're sort of saying, hey, look, the world desperately needs oil. It's just hit a peak demand historically this month in terms of world oil consumption. you find a, a stiffening of their opposition now? Well, I, I think what we see is the large fossil fuel companies using whatever they can to continue promoting their business model. So seizing every opportunity, every geopolitical opportunity to do that, whether that's the Ukraine crisis, whether that's rising gas prices, whatever they can do to both assert that they are part of the solution, an essential part of the solution to addressing climate change, and that we will be dependent on them for into the distant future beyond and even the next few decades. Well, you know, David Freeman, who I don't think you mentioned in your book, who was an engineer, a lawyer, headed the Tennessee Valley Authority, and then two major utilities in California and one in upstate New York. So he really knows what he's talking about. He felt that there was no way other than congressionally enacted mandates phasing the industry out, the oil, gas, and coal industry. And he was completely against nuclear power for other reasons. And he suggested 5% reduction a year so that within three decades or so, the oil and gas and coal industry would be faced with a gradual inevitability of replacement. What do you think of that approach? I think that would be a viable approach to starting to phase out and move away from fossil fuels. I, I think it's going to require a tremendous amount of political will. And I think one of the things that we talk about in the book, too, is how the fossil fuel industry has sort of captured our political institutions so that it's hard to enact legislation that takes more urgent kinds of action to phase out fossil fuels, although the Inflation Reduction Act, I think, has made some strides in that direction. But I'm not as familiar with that plan, but I think, yeah, these are the kinds of plans that we need to, I think, start looking at as a kind of a political goal. Just to add to that, like a broader political goal that it builds from you know, 350.org and Bill McKibben and, and others work, the, the Keep It in the Ground initiative, right? The idea that from this point on, there's just no more new drilling. We just end all drilling. So we can think about percentage reductions alongside that, but as you know, a political step, if we can make that change is what's the most viable way forward to deal with it. There's also activity at the state legislative level, like in New York, to require that new housing not be connected to gas lines, yeah. for example. Now, one thing is quite interesting about your book. We're speaking with professors James D'Amico and Mark Bailden, authors of How to Confront Climate Denial, Literacy, Social Studies, and Climate Change. And listeners, I cannot think of another book that has about 150 pages of text that has more information in it in a readable form. I mean, this is a tour de force, which is why we can go into the following segment of our discussion. You are social studies teachers. You have studied how the propaganda of the fossil fuel industry has penetrated the curriculum for decades, if not a century. In fact, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee schools, they, in other Tennessee schools, they actually lauded the great career of being an underground coal miner and how heroic it was and how well-paying it was and left out, of course, the deadly coal miner's pneumoconiosis disease 
which has taken about 400,000 coal miners' lives since 1890. And tell us about what's being taught now. Is the curriculum beginning to change in elementary school and high school? You can mention college courses. And what's being done by people like you and others to have the students be educated in reality? Yeah, I think fortunately, there, even in the past few years, there's much greater interest in making climate change a priority in schools. Now, that's coming from almost nothing. So there's still a long, long way to go. We see more evidence of a climate change curriculum in science classrooms and great curricular resources out there to teach about the climate science. The approach Mark and I take in the book as literacy, language arts, and social studies educators is to think about what that might look like in the humanities and specifically in K-12 through classrooms, that would be language arts, English, and, and social studies. So, and our, our approach there is, you know, we want to promote inquiry, you know, teachers and students investigating questions that matter, connect to their lives, that have a civic dementia to them in terms of how we can live with each other and, and be in the world. And there's still a long way to go in terms of the integration of climate change and climate justice and into this curricula. So we see some evidence at the state level. My home state, where I was born and raised, New Jersey, is the first state to have K-12 through climate change curriculum across all the content areas. And I think Connecticut is not too far behind in that regard. And we have other states that are still kind of grappling with climate change as a debate, in particular in Texas and Oklahoma, we see more evidence of that. So there's all these different energy, there's energy circulating around what we need to do about that. Again, a lot of it's led by the youth movement that's demanding that climate change be addressed in schools. We're also seeing that parents increasingly want climate change being taught in classrooms. So there is that the sense of a movement Again, to the extent that it's at the speed necessary to address the challenges is really an open question. Well, one way to test it goes back to a book that we sponsored by Sheila Hardy over 35, 40 years ago. She did a study of all the commercial materials, slideshows, bright colored pamphlets that these corporations get teachers to distribute in the classroom. It was pretty, pretty disturbing at the time. There's a flood of material from the coal, gas, and oil industry in the classrooms. These teachers wanted bright, attractive materials. They didn't have the budget, and so they were tempted, and they didn't know any better in terms of alternatives for the most part. Are these materials still flooding the classrooms? And you remember the two or three minutes of advertisement in thousands of schools that has now been suspended that had advertisements, as well as alleged news of the day, that a commercial company persuaded all these school districts to adopt. Bring us up to date. I think we're still seeing some of that. I, you know, we in the book, we talk about Heartland Institute and, you know, really getting denial materials into classrooms and, and doing the same kind of thing that you were mentioning, spreading the work of Fred Singer, who is a climate denial scientist and so on. So that's still happening in some ways, but I think, I think you know, it's coming into competition with some really, like James said, some really good resources out there, you know, Choices Program out of Brown University, Rethinking Schools, the work of Bill Bigelow, there's Zen Education, 
you know, I think a lot of Naomi Klein is is putting out materials on her website. So there's a lot a lot more options I think for teachers and so, you know, part of this is just making sure that teachers are getting their hands on some of these, you know, these kinds of curriculum materials. But there's still, you know, there's still a ways to go. I think, you know, in terms of like the professional organizations that James and I belong to, we, we still think that climate change has to be front and center, you know, really across different subjects and, and different grade levels. And there's still a ways to go in, in terms of the uh, standards and, and so on in, in social studies. You know, social studies is a pretty crowded field, you know, but I think, you know, if we use climate as kind of a connecting point, you know, it's an opportunity to talk about environmental racism, to look at the most vulnerable populations in societies and how they're being affected by climate change and so on. So, you know, I think that there's still quite a bit of work that needs to be done, but I think there's states like New Jersey who are, you know, models for making sure that it's in classrooms. Well, before COVID, one of the ways these companies got into the schools were assemblies. They would speak to high school assemblies, and we would try to get renewable energy speakers, and we were rebuffed. Obviously, the fossil fuel industry, right down to their dealers in the localities, had much closer relations with the school districts and school superintendents and principals. What's the story now on assemblies? You know, so- yeah, so I, I know Katie Worth, a journalist, came out with a book last year where she visited schools around the country to better understand the extent to which fossil fuel companies were kind of extending their reach into classrooms with curriculum materials and with presentations from industry. So she she outlined some of those techniques, the range from the early children reading these picture books about Petro Pete to these young kids. <laughs> to kind of more sophisticated materials for older kids. But the broader goal of those materials, at least the way we see it, is for the fossil fuel industry to kind of maintain its significance in our lives and the importance that they hold for us. You know, our energy needs depend on them into the future. So there's like that broader frame around those attempts that for us, frankly, it's about denial. It's another form of denial. It's another technique that they're wielding that our goal is to to help each other and ourselves become more adept at identifying how this is happening, what techniques and tactics they're using, and how we can promote different stories or different ways of being. Well, there's an old Chinese proverb by a philosopher in the Ming Dynasty in the 14th century, and he said, to know and not to do is not to know. Now, the industry knows. There's no question they know. I mean, it confronts them personally where they operate with the huge hurricanes, floods, droughts, never before seen, wildfires. How do you distinguish between climate denial and climate opposition? That is, they know, but they oppose any change to renewables and energy efficiency. I'm not sure if I see much of a difference in terms of these are the actions that the fossil fuel company are making to promote denial promote the actions necessary to address it. They're all oppositional tactics in that sense, at least in my view. So whether it's greenwashing, whether they're pushing these non-transformative solutions, whether they're emphasizing the downsides of any type of transition to renewable energy, these are all the tactics that they're using to kick the can farther down the road. They're all oppositional tactics. Greenwashing, if you're not familiar with it, some listeners, is most pointedly expressed on Earth Day. Earth Day used to be 
run by environmental groups and local groups. And now, increasingly over the last 30 years, it's been taken over by companies who greenwash. That is, they parade their environmental selves and what they're doing, their ads, and et cetera. And they increasingly fund groups who shouldn't be taking this funding to mute their concern and their criticism. Greenwashing actually doesn't get enough attention. It's washing over our whole culture to present time. It's hard to find a major corporation now that speaks out against climate disruption. They're all giving lip service. Now, how does this change in public opinion where more and more people realize this is a dreaded peril, the climate crisis, impacting Congress? I mean, Congress is the main fulcrum to systematically turn the country around because of their power under the Constitution, and they can push state and local legislatures as well. Do you see any change, say, from the last 10 years when we have the hottest planetary temperatures ever, we have almost daily huge storms and droughts and fires and floods and sea level rises and glaciers breaking up in Greenland and the Arctic and Antarctica. Do you see any movement in Congress or is the same still alignments that have blocked anything since the 2009 legislation that passed the House but was blocked in the Senate? Well, there's clearly efforts across the country. And again, in my view, there's much more of an understanding about the urgency of climate change. I mean, compared to, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, there's advocacy groups that are pushing for climate candidates, you know, having climate as part of their agenda, pushing the need for a climate policy at the local level, at the state level, and so on. There are those efforts across the country to do that. Again, there's, there's still a long way to go in that regard, but there clearly is some work in that area. It just doesn't seem like there's been much attention being given to Congress with all the distractions, not just distractions, but I mean, legitimate threats to, I think, democracy. And it's been hard to see any clear focus and action, I think, at least from over here where I am. I think that's an understatement, Mark. <laughs> Ever since the failure of the legislation sponsored by Senator Markey and others in 2009-10 because it was blocked by the Senate filibuster. Ever since then, the environmental groups have essentially dropped the ball on Congress. They will file suit against a weak environmental agency, pollution regulation, dealing with coal. You know, they'll deal with that. But when you ask them, what are they doing on Capitol Hill? They say, nothing's going on there. It's blocked. It's deadlocked. I said, well, you know, it's funny. When I go to up and down the corridors of Capitol Hill, I bump into lobbyists from the coal, oil, gas, nuclear industry. They don't think Congress is hopeless. Why are they paying attention to Congress? The bottom line is, this is going to startle you. I don't know one single person in the civic community working full time on Capitol Hill, in Capitol Hill, trying to connect favorable congressional staff with grassroots groups back home. Not one, because they see the filibuster, they see the deadlock, and they don't fight it. And as a result, the Republicans get tremendously entrenched, and they gobble up all the money from the PACs and campaign war chests of the industry, and nothing happens year after year. So this book should be sent to every member of Congress. It's packed with information, 
And you can always test a book by its conclusions. And basically, they have three. One is to change the nature of the story. All life, quote, is treated with respect, care, and responsibility, especially our most vulnerable population and species. Two, the primary goal of society's human, ecological, and planetary well-being that comes with a recognition of limits. And three, the all-important, quote, civic engagement for the common good is necessary for more just and meaningful lives in futures. So you end up with the civic community is the basis of all change. And there are a lot of books on climate crisis that end with a whimper. And you end with the fundamental asset that we have to build neighborhood by neighborhood, community by community, locality by locality, in order to turn the people who make the decisions in government, reflecting our delegation of our sovereign power to them in local, state, and the national legislatures. That's the sequence. Now, in between your introduction and conclusion, you have a lot of sectors. And I just want to let you describe what you think is the most important aspects of this book that we haven't yet touched on. First, we'll start with James and then Mark. Yeah, I think for me, the most important parts of the book is to create opportunities to investigate climate denial more specifically and to have conversations about how climate denial works and how that climate denial is often attached to these stories or these myths that we live by. Stories like humans are the center of existence separate from nature or that nature is a resource solely to be extracted and exploited. That these are these stories that we're often unaware of, we live by, and we have to find ways to identify those stories and to transition to the stories you just read, Ralph. We view those as stories about all life being treated with respect and the importance of civic engagement for a full and meaningful life. Those are stories we want to promote and live by. We call those eco-justice stories in the book. So that transition from these more destructive stories to more ecological just stories is what I'm most excited about and I think is really the central contribution of the book. Just to build on that, I would say, yeah, it's at the other end there, making sure that students and teachers are investigating and inquiring into eco-justice and, and looking at, they're doing inquiries into youth movements, into indigenous movements, into Project Drawdown has a range of climate solutions. You know, students need to be looking at, you know, these sort of just transitions and investigating them and seeing the potential that they have to start to really transition our society away from fossil fuels to more just and sustainable kinds of futures. And so I would say that that's where we end up and that's where we would like educators and students to, you know, really start to move into, you know, reimagining their futures. We talk a lot about in the book about the importance of dialogue and deliberation, the sense that we need to be in conversation with each other across all different perspectives. And that's really the heart. That's the heart of, the, of, of kind of civic engagement for us. That's what I like the emphasis on. You have a section called the deeper dive into climate denial classroom inquiries. And then to motivate people, you really go into the web of climate denial, the climate change denial machine economic, political, cultural, media context, and geographic context. So this is quite a tour de force. Listeners were speaking with James D'Amico and Mark Bailden, who co-authored the book, 
just out, How to Confront Climate Denial, Literacy, Social Studies, and Climate Change. And it was published, not surprisingly, by the Teachers College Press connected with Columbia University. And before we end, do you have a question or two, Steve or David? Yes, I have a question. It's more of a practical question down to my level. It's a hypothetical for James Mark. Let's say you are having Thanksgiving dinner together with Uncle Ted Cruz and Aunt Marjorie Taylor Greene. And they say, boys, what have you been doing lately? And you say, well, we're, we're teaching about the climate crisis. And they say, climate crisis, that's a hoax. What in that moment as a civilian do you say to them? How do you rebut that? Well, you know, there, there are some, Steve, like Catherine Hayhoe and others who argue there's not much to say in that situation. You know, for, for folks who are on the very end of the continuum of dismissives, that there, there tends not to be a lot of room for an actual conversation. So I think Mark and I would, would probably want to promote a conversation in some ways in, in that space, and that hypothetical sounds really intriguing. But the other starting point is, is to find out where people are, right? Start where, where people are. So we're trying to understand what's happening in a particular community and what's going on that, that inevitably links to the environment, whether it's health issues or political issues, or there's something happening in the local context that we can build a bridge and stay away from terms that might be, uh, that it might inflame them, that we might find a way to meet in the middle, so to speak, as a starting point. So you're saying you wouldn't stab them in the forehead with a fork? <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't. I, I think, you know, conversations are all important, uh, even with, with folks across you know, very different perspectives. Mark? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's finding some kind of common ground, whether it's an extreme weather event that's happening in their communities or, you know, maybe maybe it's just exploring what they enjoy about nature or the environment or, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I Again, like James said, you know, Catherine Hayo has said with certain dismissives, it's just that conversation is really, really challenging. But try to keep the conversation going, I guess, as, as much as possible and see where it leads. And then stab in the forehead with a fork. Okay. I believe in culture shaming. And how do we shame people who work for fossil fuel companies? How do we shame people who are considering taking jobs working for the fossil fuel companies? Is shame a powerful instrument in all this? Yeah, I think that's a really good inquiry question, David. I would love to explore that with, with students to the extent that, you know, shame as a lever for you know, political change. I think there are ways of thinking about change that's might be not directly about shame, but it is, you know, organizations like ad agencies. I don't know if you heard about the clean creatives. These are folks who do creative work, who sign a commitment or a pledge not to work with fossil fuel companies. And a lot of the book we talk about, you know, it's not just fossil fuel industry. They've been aided and embedded by the public relations industry and insurance and banking and all these industries tied together. So the more that we see all of these industries complicit in this, then we could start maybe moving, helping them see that. So I don't know. I, I think it's a great question, Dave, and something I'd like to think more about and figure out for us as educators how we could create an opportunity for students to investigate that, like bringing in sources, materials for them to evaluate and try to make sense of, to answer that question. That would be fascinating. Also, David, in that list, they included corporate law firms. 
How many authors of books on climate crisis include the brains behind the strategy, the corporate law firms who grease the wheels and develop the strategies of evasion, immunity, and impunity? So thank you all for that. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Professors James D'Amico and Mark Bailden, and they're the authors of the new book, which the New York Times neglected to review, called How to Confront Climate Denial, Literacy, Social Studies, and Climate Change, a real packed paperback of about 150 pages to bring you up to date and re-fortify the civic stamina that's required to save the planet for your posterity. Thank you. Well, thank you so thank much. You. An honor. Thank you for having us on. We've been speaking with Professors James D'Amico and Mark Bailden. We will link to their work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, Ralph will respond to recent news and your listener questions. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, January 27, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. AARP and the AFL-CIO are now partnering with insurance companies to push Medicare disadvantage, euphemistically called Medicare Advantage, on their own members. That's according to a report in the January 2023 issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen newspaper. Medicare disadvantage insurance plans induce seniors by offering advantages that traditional Medicare Medicare doesn't offer, like vision and dental coverage. That's the upside. The downside is that when you actually get seriously ill, you might not get the coverage you were promised. Now, about half of all seniors in the United States are in Medicare disadvantage. The unions should be fighting against the move to privatize Medicare. Instead of fighting, they are joining with the insurance companies to corporatize Medicare. To get a print copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen newspaper, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Hannah Feldman. Ralph, you want to talk about three topics in the news. Let's start with the tragedy, the recent mass shootings. What's your take on that? Well, the more mass shootings there are, it seems, the less Congress and state legislatures respond. There are all kinds of ways to reduce those mass shootings. It's known in other countries. And it just doesn't seem to register, no matter how horrific these tragedies are. I think one issue ought to be addressed, which is, does mass coverage of a mass shooting, right down to the victims, right down to what they experienced, all over television, radio, social media, induce deranged people or people who are prone to committing suicide to decide that they're going to take people with them on the way? In other words, the well-known sociological phenomena of mimicry. Now, in other countries, they don't so extensively, by the hour, publicize these tragedies. And they don't have the frequency. They have other reasons, of course, in Canada and elsewhere, in terms of gun safety laws. But they don't have the kind of mimicry. I think the media has a responsibility after covering the tragedies, whether soon after or after a decent interval, to probe the question, what as a society are we going to do about it? I think that was the theme of Governor Newsom. He was extremely angry after visiting the tragic shooting in Monterey Park. And he said, what is wrong with us as a society? What are we going to do about it? He also chided Kevin McCarthy, I understand, for not even sending condolences to the families. 
So we have to ask that question. What are we going to do about it? We can learn from other countries if we dropped some of our hubris who have devised systems along the whole continuum of prevention, not only in terms of gun safety control, but requiring some expertise in handling the weapon, requiring the storage of a weapon in a safe place at home, out of reach of children. All of that and more we can learn, but it doesn't seem to occur. And before they're on to the next tragic shooting, I think there was about 30 tragic shootings already in January. Can you separate the mass shootings in America with our president sending all these weapons to Ukraine? It's quite interesting. We were just talking about media over coverage. The Ukraine invasion has been the most covered war in history. I think the New York Times could be actually renamed the Ukraine War Times. Hundreds of pages and photographs day after day after day, not just the battles, but all the economic activities, the cultural activities that are being perturbed and how people are adjusting to it and or quitting Ukraine or coming back to Ukraine and virtually no focus on any incipient efforts, either by the peace movement or by governments, to restore the negotiations that started in March and April of last year in Turkey between Ukrainian and Russian negotiators. And there's a lot more to be known about why that was suspended. But the point here is, if you're going to cover the Ukraine war by the day, page after page, pay attention to some of the areas of ending that conflict, how, who, what, when is going on, instead of just focusing on the conflict itself. There's another point of over-covering a subject. How many other topics were not reported in the Times of critical nature around the world because of the hundreds of pages devoted to the Ukraine conflict and huge numbers of photographs? I think all editors have to pay attention to subjects that are overcovered and ask the question, what is crowded out? What aren't we reporting? Because we're overcovering this subject. The answer that people will give about, and I see, you know, it, it's escalating like the guns of August in 1913, 1914, as now we're talking about bringing tanks to the border and Germany providing tanks. And what they'll say is, if we do not have victory over Russia, throw Russia out of Ukraine, then China is going to invade Taiwan. That's the formulation. That's the justification. Well, you know, they can think what they want to speculate about. But the point is that we're moving closer and closer to a, a larger war with Russia. How? Well, first of all, it started out with supplying Ukrainians with missiles, then armed personnel carriers. Now it's the Leopard tanks and the Abram tanks. And the next thing President Zelensky has been demanding is fighter jets. And pretty soon, there may be an accidental strike in the wrong place in Russia. Or the military strategy will say, the only way we can win the Ukraine war is to attack Russia and go over the border. And then you have the prospect of nuclear warfare. So we're stumbling into higher and higher probabilities of greater and greater disaster here. But the coverage doesn't really focus on that. It just focuses on, well, how many leopard tanks and are the German 
officials going to let other countries they sold leopard tanks to to send it to Ukraine? And what are the maintenance problems of leopard tanks? So we're getting a lot of coverage of the Ukraine war, but we're not getting a lot of the right coverage in terms of the overall information of the citizenry in a democracy that's supposed to have some sway over the military policies of its government. Because, you know, if there's a larger war, who's going to pay the price? It's going to be people who are drafted. And if there's a nuclear war, the whole world pays the price. All right, let's shift gears once again, Ralph. You wanted to talk about Moderna raising the prices of the COVID vaccines, as reported in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, the government, when the pandemic started and they developed these drugs, they were developed by Pfizer and Moderna with very heavy reliance on scientific research going back 20, 30 years, funded by the taxpayer, by the National Institutes of Health principally. So they were, first of all, lunching off free government research and development for marketing these drugs. Second, they were given all kinds of tax benefits in marketing these drugs. And third, they were given a certain market. They didn't have to advertise to the market. It was basically a duopoly market with a fixed price. Now, these contracts basically reflect volume purchasing, and they still allow a very nice profit for Moderna and Pfizer. But Moderna and Pfizer, seeing a big market endlessly into the future, are becoming very avaricious. And they're saying, once these government contract requirements are fulfilled, we're going private, and we're going to charge what the market will bear. Well, you know, when it comes to vaccines, the market will bear almost any price when it comes to vaccines against a serious malady. So now you're hearing Pfizer saying they want to increase the price per person of the Paxlovid drug to $500. And now you hear the Wall Street Journal reporting that Moderna wants to increase the price of its COVID vaccine or boosters by fourfold, fourfold. Now, you see, they've already met their basic expenses. So all of this is almost pure profit. And then they're given all kinds of tax benefits on their profits. They're given tax credits for research and development, etc. So where is Bernie Sanders on this? He is now in the most important position. He's chair of the Senate Health and Education and Labor Committee. You couldn't have a more important position in the Senate. So we're going to rely on him to have immediate public hearings, bring in the medical specialists and the economists who know what these drugs really cost to produce and after they've been amortized as well. And we need Joe Biden to stand up and use the bully pulpit. And we need the medical associations to stand up as well, because the higher the price of these vaccines in the private market, the fewer people are going to avail themselves of it. So these avaricious corporations are basically developing a business model where fewer and fewer people will be able to avail themselves of these vaccines if they're not insured or if they're not at the income level where they can pay for it. And who knows what the insurance companies are going to start doing in terms of co-pays. So it's time for rumble from the people, listeners. Rumble from the people. Pour it on your senators and representatives. Tell your doctors to get active. Politicians often listen to doctors and send a message on the telephone to the White House. They have an opinion toll line that you can find quite easily, and they do 
put their finger to the wind here in terms of who's pro and who's con. And it would be helpful for people to know the history of Moderna in particular, which uh, Lawrence Wright chronicled in his uh, New Yorker piece, which he later turned into a book called The Plague Year. And what people don't realize, the vaccine was developed in January of 2020, before they even reported a case in the United States, because Dr. Barney Graham, he was at the NIH, recruited another doctor, another researcher, Jason McClellan, who was at the University of Texas, another publicly funded university. And they, because of, like you said, Ralph, the 20 years of SARS research they were able to do, once they got the DNA sequence from China online in mid-January, it took them essentially a weekend to devise a vaccine, which then they sent that formula to this little startup in Cambridge called Moderna, which had no other significant drug on the market. And they sent it to Moderna for distribution and marketing and manufacturing, I should say. And that's how Moderna got the vaccine. It was no research that they did. It was all NIH, University of Texas, these two researchers who developed it over the weekend, which sounds very facile, but you have to remember they were building on 20 years of research. They kind of knew what they were doing. They just had to make some intelligent guesses and they guessed right about how to reveal this spike protein that the antibodies could land on. And that's how Moderna got the drug. And Pfizer was two German scientists with a lot of German government help. So if people know that history, then they can, we're doing a disservice calling these Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. They're really taxpayer vaccines. It's your money, taxpayers, and they turn it against you and gouge you with the prices. That was a good history Steve just presented. We should never forget that so many of these big industries wouldn't even be in existence, much less the size they are, without government research and development funds. And that means your taxpayer money. And the industries include the aerospace industry, the biotech industry, the computer industry, the nanotech industry, the containerization industry. I mean, you name it. One industry after another was given a huge birth gift by the taxpayer from Washington, D.C. And then they put ads all over saying, look how great and innovative we were. Well, a lot of these innovations came from government research and development, given away free for these corporations. And by the way, sometimes they admit it. The CEO of Intel testified a few years ago before the Congress, urging more money for government research and development in the field of computers. And he said, we're very good in production and marketing in our business, Senator, but we don't like to spend much money on basic research. And that's why we want the government to do the basic research. Well, that's how the internet was created, out of DARPA, a section in the Pentagon. Taxpayer money. Taxpayer never gets credit, just like taxpayer never gets credit for building all those stadiums and arenas for the sports billionaires. They don't even name their stadium Taxpayer Stadium. No, they, they sell the name to some corporation, often about to go out of business, they sell the name over a period of years. So taxpayers, you know, don't just talk about high tax rates and grumble. Talk about the low tax rates on corporations, big ones, and CEOs, and they're super rich, and demand more for your taxes. They're taking your taxes 
and turning them into profits on a one-way stop through Washington, D.C. And then they go to Washington and say, don't tax our profits very much, because then we'll close up shop and go to some other foreign country where they have surf labor. Yeah. Or they lie and say, we need it for research and development, and what they really need it is for all the commercials. And stock buyback. That's right. The drug companies spend more money on marketing and advertising than they do on research and development. And besides that, the research and development are often for lifestyle pharmaceuticals or the kind of drugs you take every day for hypertension, for example. They don't like to do research in vaccines or drugs where you just take them infrequently. So they pick and choose, but do they know how to spend money advertising to doctors, to hospitals, on TV, to the general public? It's a scandal when they talk about, oh, we've got to keep high profits so we can pour it back into research and development. If we're giving all this seed money to corporations, what prevents the federal government from demanding a piece like stock, like a little ownership? Nothing. When the government bailed out General Motors, mighty General Motors, so badly mismanaged under the Obama years, GM went bankrupt. Well, the government resurrected it, and they took a share of stock. In fact, the government and the UAW owned 61% of General Motors. So there's the precedent right there, David. But they don't do it much anymore. It was non-voting stock, and Obama said, we're not a socialist country. Yeah, they could have turned GM around into a pioneer in fuel-efficient pollution control and safety because... They had the voting power if they wanted it, but Obama didn't want it. And so the same management, essentially, of GM kept running the company as the taxpayers were spending billions of dollars bailing this company out because of its mismanagement and poor product anticipation in comparison with Japanese and German auto companies. All right, we're going to wrap this up. But before we do, Hannah has her hand raised. Hannah? (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Ralph, if... The federal government is unwilling to move on public ownership of pharmaceuticals and vaccines. Are there any states stepping in? Is there a way for states to step in and set up public pharma? If we're calling our Congress people and they're really not getting back to us, is there anyone else we can bug who represents us? Yeah, a state like California could set up its own pharmaceutical company to produce antibiotics. Most people don't know, not counting our informed listeners, that there's no more production of antibiotics in this country. You want to talk about national security? It's all been exported to China, India, and other companies, and then brought back into this country in order to make excessive profits for the U.S. pharmaceutical companies who are outsourcing the production of antibiotics. So a state like California say, hey, we don't want to rely on the vagaries of world military and foreign policy here. We've got to bring antibiotic production back in the U.S. There's nothing that can stop that. The other agency that can do it, Hannah, believe it or not, is the Pentagon. During the Vietnam War, the second leading cause of hospitalization for U.S. soldiers in Vietnam was malaria. And yet the drug companies in the U.S. weren't patriotic enough to do any research in the area to develop drugs to deal with malaria, never mind vaccines, just therapeutic drugs to deal with malaria. So the Pentagon said, the heck with them. And they set up essentially their own drug research and development capability at Walter Reed Hospital and Bethesda Naval Hospital. 
and they developed three anti-malarial drugs, which they then made available free around the world without many patents, and it cost 5% of what the private drug companies would have claimed it would have cost them to develop these drugs. That's an unknown story. All right, well, that's our show. I want to thank our guests again, James D'Amico and Mark Bailden. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at RalphNaderRadioHour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We'll pick out some standout comments and ask Ralph for his response. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Listeners, carry the professor's message to your schools. It's got to start at the educational level, not just the civic level. I think you should step up. Rise up, rise up.